This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. What am I doing here attacking these people? These are my people. And you, and you see that on social media. You see people who are ethnically Russian, who are Ukrainian citizens coming out and just yelling at these Russian soldiers, go back to Russia, get away. You know, one woman in particular was particularly vocal. Put sunflower seeds in your pocket so at least something good will happen when you lie down. Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by our friends at Move to Tacoma. My name is Nate, and I'm your host, a Tacoman abroad. Today, we are having a conversation about the situation in Russia. And in fact, I want to give a timestamp right now. Uh, we are having this conversation at 7.41 p.m. Gulf Standard Time on Saturday. Uh, it's Saturday, February 26th, and we're being joined by Jeff Hahn. Jeff is a former show guest. He joined us uh, back in October to talk about the degradation and decay of democracy in Russia. And I've been watching his social media feed and kind of seeing what's going on. And so I hit him up to come back and talk about the show. He's a Russia expert. And Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. Uh, just Jeff, for the benefit of folks who didn't hear the show in October, uh, what's your area of expertise? My area of expertise is Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. My dissertation is focusing on Russia from and U.S. relations from 1991 to 1993, leading up to the Russian constitutional crisis, which is when the constitution that later enabled the rise of Vladimir Putin was put in place. Okay. Um, you are uniquely positioned to actually be somebody who has some expertise in what's going on. And there's a lot of people on social media with a lot of takes who actually don't know a lot about what's going on. And so I just want to start with the question, like, how are you processing what's going on? Like, how is it for you as an expert on the region to be watching uh, what is unfolding right now? Well, uh, you know, I, I'm glad that you asked me to come on and talk about it because I think that'll be therapeutic in a way. It's been rough. I've been feeling like I've been in shock for the last three days. I have a lot of friends in Ukraine and Russia and I've got uh, Russian and Ukrainian friends who have family and friends in both nations. So it's, it's been hard. I've been to Kiev. I've been to a lot of the places I'm now watching get bom bombed on TV. I've met a lot of those people. And um, it's been very emotional and difficult. At, but what's good about the Eurasian community, both on social media and uh, here in the UK, is we're kind of a close-knit group. And you know, it's, we're all united uh, in our condemnation of this, and we've been really able to lean on each other and help each other out and help out our friends from the region. Yeah. Something I saw you post online that struck me was you basically said you had it wrong and that you had predicted this was not going to happen and then this is unfolding. And so what led you to think that, so we all saw that, you know, Putin was amassing the troops uh, on the Ukrainian border. Folks were like, oh, it's an exercise, always oh, posturing. Uh, what led you to think that he was not going to go through with the invasion? 
So what led me to go? Th- uh, so what led me to that was, as someone who studied foreign policy and political science, you know, you always go with the rational actor model, mm-hmm. and capability doesn't equal intent. He's moving troops on the border. Okay, let's look at the political situation to think about what are his int- intentions and what's the cost-benefit analysis. Logically, it doesn't make any, what he's doing doesn't make any sense because he has nothing to gain and everything to lose, and that was how I structured my analysis. Uh, and as it turns out, I was wrong about what was going to happen, but I was right about what the consequences would be because everything I thought bad would happen if he actually went through with it, which made it not worth it, is starting to unfold before our eyes. Yeah, I was going to ask. So you, you're able to read Russian. I obviously can't. And so uh, you're able to like look into media in a way that I can't. And actually, as an aside, last night, my wife and I, we went up to Dubai for uh, an event and we stayed in a hotel. And the only English language stations were RT and CNN. And so like just two absolute extremes of the takes or whatever. So like instead, I tried to like watch Deutsche Welle television with my seventh grade German and I failed miserably, but different conversation. Uh, What are you seeing in Russian language media about the reaction to people, the reaction that people within Russia are having to this invasion? So I'm going to give a quick shout out to Ian Garner, who I think is at University of Toronto, who just put together a brilliant Twitter thread on this, and I hope he puts an article out on it. Uh, The Russian media doesn't know what to do with this because Hmm. they're using a very bland language for it. They're making all sorts of outlandish claims that no person could possibly believe. They're talking about, oh, there's a special military operation and Russian forces are avoiding civilian casualties. But when you switch to the independent Russian media or you go on Telegram or you go on Twitter and you go on, or you go on Facebook or Vokontaktia, which is the Russian equivalent of Facebook, you're, you really quickly see that narrative really rapidly fall apart. And there's a lot of people in Russia who are watching places they visited, places they have family getting bombed and seeing dead Russian soldiers who are fighting. They can't, they can't understand what these, their sons are dying for. Um, yeah, and if I could recommend, if anyone's interested, I recommend Medusa, which is Russian language, but they also have an English service based in the Baltic states. Mm-hmm. I uh, recommend, I highly recommend um, Novi- uh, No, sorry, <laughs> Kiev Independent, which is uh, independent English language newspaper based in Kiev. Uh, they've been doing some really good reporting. They have a Telegram, but they're also still updating their website. Um, and of course, I think another good one who's doing some independent coverage is the Eastern Borders podcast. Mm-hmm. And I've, uh, I know the guy uh, kind of from online. I've talked to him a couple of times, but he's he's gotten himself over to Ukraine. And also Twitter has been a really good uh, source of information. Rob Lee from King's College is doing a lot of coverage on like the actual fighting. And there's a lot of other good, really good Russian uh, area experts and a lot of Russians and Ukrainians. And I think that's one thing we have to really promote is the Ukrainians and Russians who are speaking up for themselves and telling their stories. Yeah. Jake Hanrahan, who's a host for Popular Front, is in Ukraine right now, embedded with some of the Ukrainian soldiers who are fighting. And the footage he's coming out with is going to be spectacular, I'm sure. Uh, something that you mentioned, actually, I think is worth kind of plugging into for the audience's benefit. Um, I think that the average person in the United States or person listening to this overestimates the amount of state control of Russian media. Can you describe the uh, Russian media environment? Yeah, the Russian media environment's weird because it's the kind of mixed, um, mixed soft authoritarianism that Russia's lived under since Putin came to power. And it's gotten worse since 2012, but there's still independent outlets. Uh, Novaya Gazeta's one. The Moscow Times is an English language daily. 
Um, and a lot of these independent newspapers and websites kind of, they're cautious about what they put out because they don't want to get censored. Sure. Um, but they still do, are independent. Uh, Novaya Gazeta, I think uh, their editor-in-chief won the Nobel Prize recently, and I think they had probably one of the best reactions to the start of the war for a Russian media outlet. They published their next day's edition in Ukrainian and Russian to protest the war. Okay. Um, I, I think it's worth digging into a bit. How did we get here? Like we know, I, we're not going to go through the entire history of the of, of Ukraine and like its independence. Like that's not that's not for this conversation right now. Uh, but how did we end up that this is where we are right now? Well, really, I mean, yeah, it's it's hard to summarize in a brief conversation. But at its most basic, um, Ukraine. Belarus and Russia agreed in 91 to dissolve the Soviet Union, and the idea they were going to replace it with a commonwealth. But each of the three nations took their own path. Belarus became an authoritarian dictatorship. Ukraine became a very corrupt, free-willing, oligarchical, uh, kind of semi-quasi-democracy. And Russia kind of took a middle path between the two. Um, but in 2014, that changed substantially because of the Maidan revolution. People in Ukraine legitimately wanted to join Europe, and they wanted the president at the time to sign an association agreement with Europe. But he backtracked at the last minute and signed one with uh, Russia. He was subsequently overthrown, and I, I want to reiterate that, yes, although a lot of these activists uh, were trained by various NGOs that promote democracy and uh, other things, uh, you know, and um, protest movement and democrat, uh, you know, democratic values abroad, uh, there was no government hand in this. This was a legitimate manifestation of the will of the people of Ukraine, yeah. and this was their revolution. Russia reacted to that by first annexing Crimea, uh, which was a largely bloodless takeover because mm. of the very complex history of that peninsula and its close association with Russia, and then starting the war in Donbass, where they essentially set up proxies uh, and tried to break off the majority ethnically Russian regions uh, as proxy states. And then that, that ultimately failed, again, because of the mobilization of the Ukrainian people. In 2014, the Ukrainian army was a joke. Less than 5,000 combat-capable men. There's some great pictures of like one of their lead tank battalions had trees growing out of its equipment because it hadn't been used in so long. Uh, and corruption and was rampant throughout the armed forces. But people in Ukraine mobilized for the National Guard units uh, and essentially the war stalemated, which led to the Minsk peace agreements. Mm -hmm. um, and you probably heard that thrown around a lot. Essentially, at its most basic, what that was, it was a negotiation where these breakaway regions would re-enter Ukraine in a confederation, and it essentially would give them a veto over Ukraine ever joining NATO. Um, and that was the status quo for about eight years. Uh, and these breakaway regions didn't have any legitimate popular support. It was mostly mm -hmm. Russian uh, proxies and a lot of Russian servicemen who were voluntold to go take off their uniform patches and go fight in there. But then, just a few days ago, Putin recognized these as legitimate states, which, again, I want to reiterate, they are not. And then that was the end of the Minsk Peace Accord. Uh, and then he launched, launched his war because, you know, he's, uh, I think, and we can talk about this more later, but I think he's increasingly become... The COVID pandemic has accelerated, but I think he's increasingly become divorced from reality and has started to believe his own propaganda. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I want to go back to a, a term used earlier on. You said the rational actor model. And 
again, I'm not an expert in foreign policy, but my pedagogy and instruction is good in classroom. Something that I remember being taught in university is, is essentially that like states are rational, leaders are rational, and that folks engage in activities that are rational uh, for domestic consumption oftentimes. And so I'm hearing you say this invasion is very, very unpopular. But at the same time, and this, somebody's going to say I'm being a Putin apologist here. That's not what I'm doing here. So like, like calm yourselves down for a second. But what Vladimir Putin is doing is trying to replace, it appears to me, he's trying to replace a regime on his Western border that he feels is hostile to his interests and is pro-Western. Like he's not invading Belarus. He's not invading uh, Kazakhstan. Like he's going and he's trying to topple the regime in Ukraine because the Ukraine Ukrainian regime has a has a has a pro-Western tilt, and he's troubled by that. And I I don't want to be like Noam Chomsky and run everything through like a U.S. lens and be like ooh U.S. bad, but like if if British Columbia suddenly became a, a Soviet or sorry a Russian satellite state, like the U.S. government wouldn't tolerate that. And so in in some ways, what he's doing is rational from that point of view. Do you, I, I understand what you're going with, yeah. and I, I'm, I'm, you know, I know why you brought this up because, yeah, this is going to be something that a lot of people are going to raise. But um, so I want to stay, stay, start by stating emphatically yeah. that mistakes have been made in U.S. and European policy towards Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union. I'll be the first to argue that ad nauseum. That was then, though. Nothing excuses or justifies what he's done now. Oh, agree. Because, agreed. yeah, absolutely. No, I know you know that, but I just want to reiterate sure. that on the record. Uh, because the Ukrainian um, government and the, the government of Zelensky is a democratic government and its people have chosen this as their path. And, um, you know, Zelensky also was a very moderate guy mm -hmm. when he was elected. He was, he was elected on a pro-peace platform. He's, he had until recently been pushing – he had started – recently he started pushing a little bit more towards uh, bringing up the status of Crimea – Mm -hmm. But he was in favor of the Minsk agreement, and there was a lot of internal Ukrainian opposition to implementing those agreements. Um, but you know, he he was a reasonable guy, and I think that there was a, there was still there's still plenty there was still plenty of uh, room, essentially, not even for the status quo, but to step back and normalize the situation. And I also want to just um, point out that. Putin has invaded Belarus. Essentially what happened was the dictator of uh, Belarus, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to mispronounce his name because I don't like the guy so much. I, I try not even to think about it. But uh, Lukashenko, I think, is uh, – he essentially he, – he saw a lot of protests not that long ago when he rigged the election again. Yeah. Uh, and he's got an opposition government. And he essentially has been flirting with a – allowing Belarus to be absorbed into Russia in the Union State for uh, decades and dangling that as a carrot. And he essentially just sold out his whole country. And that's why Belarus has been used as a springboard mm. for Russian troops to attack Kiev. Belarus essentially is only an independent country in theory now. In practice, it's just another province of Russia right no, that's now. And, for sure. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and then I do just want to reiterate one other point in that in the whole lead up to this war, I think Zelensky and his government were very careful into not provoke mm. Russia and not to give them any justification because, and people will come after me for this, but there's a lot of debate about the 2008 war in Georgia where you had some legitimate separatist regions yeah. who were trying to break away for Georgia and had been for years, and there were Russian peacekeepers as a holdover from the Yeltsin period. 
and the the Georgian president Saakashvili, um, who's always been a bit of a wild man, thought that he had NATO backing to go reincorporate those territories, and he launched an attack, and the Russians counterattacked, and then we came to the status quo we are now there, where those territories are essentially Russian protectorates. Uh, Zelensky was not doing that. There's no indication he was planning to do that. And yeah, I mean, okay, I'll, let me just quote George uh, George Kennan on this, um, the American diplomat. The the Kremlin has always had a very neurotic and paranoid worldview. And mm-hmm. yeah, we as Westerners know NATO is not going to launch a huge invasion into Russia, but the Russian regime has always been afraid of that. But that's a very paranoid viewpoint. But throughout the COVID pandemic, as he was isolated and as he was cut off from information and people increasingly told him what he wanted to hear, I think Putin came more and more to see that kind of paranoid distortion as reality. So I think that was what was a big driver in his actions. So from his perspective, he is behaving rationally. But from Mm -hmm. the perspective of objective reality, he's acting like an insane man. Oh, no, no, for sure, for sure. And so, <laughs> something I, I often think about when talking about Russian history is is that you have this giant state that basically is so large because they conquered a bunch of territory that wasn't worth taking back, frankly. Uh, they've been invaded by the Mongols. They've been invaded by Hitler, been invaded by, by Napoleon. And so there's a bit of paranoia about invasion. And so that that's kind of the thing where, 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 I'm, where I'm kind of laying this out, this rational actor thing, that... Again, I'm not able to process Russian language media for the, the way that you are and access it. But the state is essentially trying to trying to establish something it can control on its boundaries so it can protect itself from invasion. And, and, and in some ways, like there's folks, there's folks like online and folks on the American left that are playing right into that. Like I, we were talking before we hit record. There have been proposals for things like no fly zones, which well, actually hold on. Hey, Jeff. Why is NATO trying to institute a no-fly zone over Ukraine a terrible idea? Okay. Um, so, yeah, and let me reiterate, no one has seriously suggested that. People have called for it, yeah. and I myself have supported it because it, just the emotional part of my mind wants to do something. But it, it's, it's, it's not feasible because a no-fly zone in practice means essentially banning combat aircraft from airspace. And what that means is you'd have to deploy other combat aircraft to patrol that airspace. And if they, you see something come in there, you'd have to shoot it down. So that essentially in practice is American and European fighter jets engaging uh, Russian fighter jets in the skies of Ukraine. And that's how we get on the path towards World War III. So it, it just, it's not, it's not at all feasible, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, One of the talking points that I've heard from the political right is, is that essentially going back to what we were saying with NATO, that NATO expansion was a provocation unnecessarily to Putin. And that essentially, and again, so this is not me talking, this is me bringing, like I can like hear hackles out there in cars. So this is a, a, a meme on the political right, that NATO expansion into the West was a provocation and that if uh, NATO and the US would have listened to the Russians, this would not have to happen. Can you address that kind of, that meme that's floating around right now? I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up because that that is a big issue, and that's a big part of my research also. If anyone's interested, I would direct them to Mary Sorot's book, Not One Inch. It just came out recently. Mm-hmm. It is all about NATO expansion and the debate over it. Um, bottom line up front, uh, yeah, NATO expansion in a lot of ways was mishandled back in the 90s because in 1991, 
Boris Yeltsin uh, wrote to the American uh, president that Russia's long-term goal was ascension, to, was ascension into NATO. And actually, Putin brought this up in his speech. Um, he said that in 2000, he talked to President Clinton about Russia joining NATO. Okay, but the thing is, is that um, by the time Putin came to power, it, it would have been impossible because Russia didn't want to follow any of the conditions required to join NATO. Right. Yeah. Prior to that, prior to that, uh, though, in the 1990s, there, there might have – this is one of the things my research really focuses on yeah. is how the opportunity to integrate Russia into like the European system, the way Ukraine was trying to integrate itself. Or, you know, here's a good, here's a good example. Like, okay, so Poland, Romania, all these former Warsaw Pact states have integrated themselves very well into the European system, into NATO, and they've become – Westernized, they become Europeanized. Uh, they become part of the club, and they become part of this collective group. And you know, I just cannot come up with a good reason. In the 1990s, sure, I want to reiterate this was this is third. This was almost 30 years ago. Uh, I just want to reiterate uh, it, it was during that period. I cannot come up with a good reason why Russia was not allowed in. People kept saying it was too big, but I really don't can't figure where their logic's coming from. Essentially, what it boils down to is. Um, Russia was seen as the main primary opponent of NATO, and if you let mm -hmm. them into the club, what what's the point of NATO? So again, I would uh, encourage anyone who's more interested to go look at Mary Sorot's book, and also uh, my PhD supervisor, Vladislav Zubok, just wrote a really great book uh, called uh, Collapse, about the last days of the Soviet Union, and you can learn more about what happened in the period that led to where we are now. Friends, this is Marguerite Martin, creator of MoveToTacoma.com and co-founder of Channel 253. It's bad out there, folks. Home prices in Pierce County are up 15% year over year. While it's no secret that the market is hot, you may not know that Tacoma has been the hottest housing market in the country for several years. There is an extreme shortage of homes for buyers to buy. Having a local Tacoma buyer's agent that specializes in the neighborhood and price range you're after can mean the difference between losing or winning the bid on your dream home. If you're looking to sell your current home and find something that meets your needs better, having a neighborhood expert handle your listing will impact how much money you net off of your sale. The right agent to market and sell a home on the West Slope might not be the same person who has the expertise and connections to find you an income generating duplex somewhere else. All agents have specialties, and I know the players for every niche. Best of all, it doesn't cost you anything. Great local agents are happy to pay me a finder's fee if you end up buying or selling. And you can rest easy knowing you're going to get a great agent who specializes in exactly what you're looking for. If you want to learn more, visit MoveToTacoma.com and use the contact form. Thanks for listening to Channel 253. And we are back. I want to thank you for giving this show a listen today. Uh, this podcast is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. We're a network of shows giving voice to perspectives you won't hear elsewhere. Uh, Jeff may not be in Tacoma. I may not be in Tacoma, but this conversation is still relevant to folks in Tacoma. And so if you're listening to this and enjoying the show, I'm going to ask you to consider joining Channel 253 as a member. Your membership supports us and makes it all possible. And that membership costs $4 a month or $40 a year. You can join at channel253.com slash membership. 
If you get join, if, if you join, you get access to our memorable Slack. And uh, actually, the day that the conflict started, a channel started on the Slack channel called War. What is it good for? And it's basically the most active, uh, most active channel on a member Slack. And so. If you want to know what's going on in the community, want to know what's going on abroad, uh, think about joining Channel 253. Okay, Jeff, so let's get back to it. Uh, we were talking about NATO expansion into the West. Oh, sorry, sorry, in, in, toward the East and like what happened in the 1990s. One of the things that we talked about back in October that I think is worth bringing up is, is that period in the 1990s when the Soviet Union collapsed and the country of Russia was created uh, and they went full hog into parliamentary democracy also coincides with basically like a period of absolute economic tumult that was like worse than the Great Depression. And so there's a period, and, and, and tell me if I'm wrong here, there's a bit of like humiliation about that 30 years ago. And part of Putin's appeal and Putinism is like the restoration of Russian greatness. Is, that, is there an element to that in this conflict as well? Um, yeah, so there is to a degree. Mm -hmm. uh, let, let me first start by saying, so that, that humiliation, the Russians saw themselves as the co-victors of the Cold War because they saw themselves as the ones who had thrown off the Soviet Union and they had recaptured the legacy of 1917. They had oh, resurrected the Russian Republic. Yeah, and the American, the American and Western perspective is Especially, and I've talked to a lot of diplomat, American diplomats who I just want to say were really good, hardworking guys who then had to deal with all these folks coming in, these experts coming in from the IMF and DC who essentially treated the Russians like, like losers, like yeah. trash. And, you know, I was a, kind of a personal anecdote. I, uh, entered, when I entered university, I said I wanted to study Russia and my academic advisor tried to talk me out of it because, quote, Russia's done, nothing interesting is going to happen there for a hundred years. That's, so that um, distinction you made is interesting because so so for me, I, I don't think that I even actively think about the Soviet Union and Russia as being different enterprises. I view it as a continuation. But that framing that the Russians actually defeated like the evils of communism and restoring what had risen in 1917 is that really interesting framing. Man, I'm glad we're having this conversation. Um, what's what what is the end game here? Like, where do you think this ends up? Well, I've got a number of scenarios I've been playing with. Uh, let me start by saying that, kind of going back to that rational actor model, yeah. Putin and I think the Russian high command deluded themselves into thinking they'd be greeted as liberators in Ukraine, but instead they've just been greeted with guns and resistance. And the Ukrainians are putting up an admirable fight, mm. and they are they are resisting. They are resisting as hard as they can to preserve their freedom and their people. Um, so I, I don't Ukraine I don't think is going to be completely overrun. I you know Russia people say Russia obviously has an advantage, but there's a difference between capability and um, will. Yeah, uh, I've been reading some military analysts, especially ex U.S. Army guys, who are talking about this. The Russian soldiers are just not motivated. A lot of them are conscripts. Even the contract soldiers mm. are are like what what the hell am I doing here? This is where, you know, and, and for these Russian guys, this is a particular, I think that for a lot, and I'm just speculating, but I, um, in my entire time traveling in the former Soviet Union, uh, I have never met a person who did not lose a relative in the Great Patriotic War. One of my friends here, uh, her father is retired now. He's on a mission to find out where his father died. Uh, 
because he was serving in the Red Army uh, during during the war. And you know, there's a lot of Russian soldiers standing in Ukraine now near places like um, Poltova and uh, Kursk, and uh, thinking, you know, it's this this is where my grand this is where my great grandfather this is where my grandfather died fighting against the fascist. Um, what am I doing here attacking these people? These are my people. And you, and you see that on social media. You see people who are ethnically Russian, who are Ukrainian citizens coming out and just yelling at these Russian soldiers, go back to Russia, get away. You know, One woman in particular was particularly vocal, put sunflower seeds in your pocket so at least something good will happen when you lie down. Sunflower is the national flower of uh, Ukraine. Anyway, so there's a couple of scenarios we could see here. Putin's end goal, what he's envisioning probably, is either a, reg- a total regime change and installing a puppet government that will be friendly to Russia and enter into an association, maybe even join the Union State that Belarus is a member of, or a partition along the Dnieper River, which is the natural boundary between kind of the um, – roughly speaking, this is a very rough kind of terminology because people are mixed together across both sides of the river. But sure, sure, sure. The eastern half is kind of traditionally been more predominantly Russian-speaking. And the Western half is more traditionally uh, Ukrainian speaking, and that's because of how empires divided up Ukraine in the past. Uh, so maybe a partition, maybe we'll see a UN brokered ceasefire in a partition like uh, Korea. But my optimistic, and I want to reiterate that I don't know if this is going to happen, but I'm hopeful it will. My optimistic hope is that this is going to be the death knell of the Putin regime. They've lost all international credibility. The Russian economy is absolutely tanking. Um, the people in Russia are – a lot of them are very upset by this and a lot of them are going to get more upset by this. Russia has a conscript military. Mm-hmm. Even though it has a lot of professional soldiers now who sign contracts to be full-time soldiers, they still need conscripts to fill it out. And what we saw in the 1990s in the Chechen War is huge protest driven by the mothers of Russian soldiers who were coming back dead from Chechnya. And you know this is why the war in Donbass and uh, the Crimean occupation and even the war in Syria, Russia's always really tried to keep casualties low or to hide casualties because as soon as you see uh, casualties starting to appear, people are going to be angry. They want to know what their sons have died for, and uh, it's going to push people on the st- out on the streets. We've already seen big protests in Russia. I mean, people are risking arrest and detention. And we're, I think we're starting to see the regime panic. Dmitry Medvedev, the former president and uh, prime minister, who's still a big wheel in the Russian government and a close associate of Putin, talked about bringing back capital punishment, which Russia abolished in the 1990s. Hmm. I can't tell you how huge that is to hear a Russian politician legitimately say that in a country that experienced the Troikas and the Great Purge. To have a sitting politician say, maybe we should bring back capital punishment, that's just going to start ringing alarm bells for a lot of people, not just people in the streets, but people in local government. Russia is a huge country. It's a federal government. There are a lot of regions with their own leadership who until now have essentially been bought off. You're even seeing people in the Russian parliament who voted to recognize the regions come out and publicly say they are against this war and this war is a mistake. So you can only imagine what they're saying behind closed doors. So my hope is is that Putin will either be forced out in a palace coup, kind of like what happened recently to Nazarbayev in Afghanistan. Oh, no, I'm sorry, in Kazakhstan. In Kazakhstan, I'm sorry, I haven't slept very well the last couple of days. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> or, or maybe there will be, or maybe the government will be overthrown because 
the, and this is where I just want to bring back the Russian military real quick. Yeah. The final arbiter in Russian politics has always been the Russian military, but it's historically, and I can't say if this is still the case, but historically it's been a very um, politically apolitical organization in that it doesn't want to get involved in day-to-day politics. Yeah. It wants to get its its budget and it wants to lobby for its budget, but it doesn't want to run the country. And it will step in to be the final arbiter in a political dispute, but sometimes it doesn't step the way it does. We saw this in 91 with the coup. They put tanks on the streets. And I, I just want to emphasize the coup in 91 was was instigated by members of the government, mm-hmm. of the civilian government, not the military itself, though the military high command supported it initially. And essentially, you saw soldiers on the ground who were they were following orders, but they were doing it very creatively. And a great example is when they ordered uh, tanks to surround the center of resistance, which at the time was the parliament building where Boris Yeltsin was held up. The soldiers surrounded the building, but they pointed the tanks away from the building like they were protecting it. So they're technically following orders, but they weren't. So I don't, if people come out on the streets and say, um, Putin needs to go, criminals out. I don't really know if the military is going to step in and stop them, and I don't know if the National Guard is going to have the capability because a lot of the National Guard guys who are supposed to be the force that will get people off the streets, they're down in Ukraine right now dying in the Ukrainian mud. So, yeah, I'm hopeful that this will be the death knell of the regime and we might see a better, more democratic Russia come out of it, but that's the optimist in me speaking. Most likely in a couple of weeks, the Ukrainians will continue to hold out viciously and Putin's circle might finally tell him what's going on and force him to accept uh, internationally brokered ceasefire. Mm-hmm. And then we might see the war go hot or cold and we might see just a bigger continuation of Donbass. But yeah, I definitely uh, I, I, I definitely think this is a, a, a huge turning point in history because even if Putin isn't deposed by this, he's already very old. And I think whoever is going to succeed him is taking notes right now and trying to figure out how they can walk back from this catastrophe. And before we go, Nate, I just want to mention that one thing I keep hearing from Russian friends and Russian sources and, you know, just throughout Twitter space is Russian, the the common Russian people's reaction to this and Mm -hmm. even people in government's reaction. It's just the collective shame, the collective how do we come back from this? You know, it's it's just um, so I, I, I think this might be the straw that finally breaks the camel's back. But again, that's me living in hope. No, it's interesting. So, like, you present that Ukraine fight faces the possibility of either having a regime change and a puppet state put in place, or having the country partitioned and having a Western-leaning Ukraine and then a Russian-orbit Ukraine. But then at the same time, on the other hand, we could see the fall of the Putin regime. Uh, off the top of your head, when's the next round of Duma elections? Um, so, actually, the presidential election's coming up. Okay. I think I think it's um, either it's not this year. I think it's in twenty twenty four. I'd need to double check. We just had Duma elections. Um, I think it was last year. Yeah, yeah, because I wrote about it, and they're every five years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Could could we see so like so for folks who are listening or aren't aware, uh, Putin is the leader of the United Russia Party, and so like it's kind of a catch-all party and a dominant party system where essentially you have this kind of large centrist party that has a supermajority in the Duma and then there's basically like the communists to its left and like the woo-hoo-hoo to its right. Uh, could we see a fracturing of the United Russia Party in the next round of elections? I think if Putin goes um, and or and or if – so hypothetically, even yeah. – and I think the least likely scenario is they get some kind of victory out of this. I think the most – Realistically and likely is some kind of ceasefire, internationally brokered ceasefire. If mm-hmm. those sanctions stay in place, 
we might see a fracture. We, I think we'll definitely see a fraction of the Duma because the it's a political machine, right? Sure. It's all about patronage. And I mean, under the table patronage, the blat, the bribery. Uh, you, can't, you can't pay those guys your bribes. They're going to turn on you really quick. Here's one thing we should consider, again, talking about history. The opposition movement that really brought down the Soviet Union didn't come from the intelligentsia, although they were a big force in it. The guys who really brought it down was Boris Yeltsin and his circle. They were all former members of the Communist Party, and they had all gone, gone through the ranks, and then they broke with it, yeah. um, largely out of their own ambition. So we should watch and see what happens, because those guys I was talking about in Parliament earlier, they weren't United Russia members, but they were members of the systemic opposition, who essentially are just there to say, oh yeah, look, of course, we have an opposition. They don't really oppose anything, but... Yeah, I think I, I think there is a really good chance that Russian politics is going to fracture over this. And another thing that's important: Putin's never designated a successor, and his entire inner circle are—they're all like him. They're old, and I think increasingly out of touch. So it might be a wild scramble, and we might see the Russian economy collapse back to levels we haven't seen since the 1990s. Uh, so okay, I was going to get us out of this, but you—you you mentioned the Russian economy. Are the sanctions that are already in place having a big effect on the Russian economy? And so, like, in, in theory, the new proposed sanctions would make it much worse? Um, so the sanctions that have been in place have basically stagnated. The, before, the, before the start of the unprovoked, unjustified invasion of the uh, – Yeah, uh, renewed all those adjectives, all of them, yes. Yeah, all, all right. Before the war expanded, um, those sanctions that were already in place were stagnating the uh, Russian economy. Um, now, and my um, friend and colleague, Nick Triquette, has actually just written some very interesting articles on this. Russia has a huge foreign currency reserve mm. uh, and a huge gold reserve, but in, in practice, that actually is not going to do a lot because they're, they're not going to use that to essentially create stimulus for people. They're going to use it to basically just keep the bare bones machinery running. And they can only do that for so long because they've been frozen out of foreign currency exchange. They can't get dollars anymore, mm -hmm. so they can't liquidate their gold for uh, foreign currency. Uh, the, the sanctions that are coming into place, especially if they disconnect uh, Russia from the SWIFT system, that essentially is just going to uh, kill the Russian economy. And it's a very – I don't pretend to be an economist, uh, but essentially it is a very complex system that I think is going to start crashing down really rapidly. Unfortunately, the people who are going to be hurt the most are everyday Russians, Always. most of whom are against this war. Yeah, who are seeing their savings completely evaporate because the, the value of the ruble has just crashed. Yeah, um, yeah and it's just it's only going to go lower. Yeah, a, a ruble is worth less than a Dogecoin right now, just for context. Um, throughout the interview, you talked about uh, sources and folks and like books that people should check out. Uh, do you want to offer any other sources you're following that you think people should uh, take a look at? Um, so, okay, yeah. So to follow the war, I definitely would recommend for military analysis, uh, Rob Lee on Twitter and uh, Sim Tack. They both do a really good job covering the fighting um, for like political uh, developments and what's going on. There's, there's a bunch of really great Russian folks out there. Um, I would recommend also looking for uh, folks who are Ukrainian mm -hmm. or Russian and seeing, seeing what their takes are. I, don't, I haven't gotten their permission, so I don't want to mention them by name, but there's a lot of great folks out there. Uh, okay, and then for media sources, Medusa, in the, uh, which is based in the Baltic states, but is Russian language, but also is an English one, um, is a great source. Uh, and then, of course, 
yeah, Kiev Independent, definitely can't forget about these guys. They are actually in the trenches in Kiev right now. They're an independent English language newspaper. They have a website, but they're also on Telegram, which is really easy and secure to use. So uh, definitely follow them. And yeah, follow their reporters on Twitter. Those are the best sources I can recommend. Uh, for you know more traditional media, France 24, uh, Deutsche Welle English, yeah. uh, and Sky News have all done a pretty good job covering the war. Okay. Yeah. And then lastly, if people want to tangibly help people in Ukraine, uh, like you can't pack up and send Molotov cocktails over, unfortunately, uh, what are some resources you can offer them? Uh, there's a number of really good charities, and um, I hope we'll, we'll be able to post the hyperlinks, but uh, Revive Soldiers Ukraine, um, Come Back Alive, uh, United Help Ukraine, and what was the last one? Uh, Army SOS. Uh, and I'm going to give you the hyperlinks and you can, people can go on their websites and donate. And these are all good charities which are providing help to Russian, to, to Ukrainian servicemen uh, and to Ukrainian families. And also, of course, you know, the big, the big one that the Ukrainian Red Cross, uh, the Polish Red Cross is doing a lot of work right now. Uh, and then the UN has a number of uh, refugee assistance organizations that are currently deployed on the ground helping people. And uh, yeah, and I just I just got to caution people to be careful before they donate because there are a lot of scams getting set up already. Um, so make sure it's a verified charity. But uh, I definitely would encourage you to donate. And if you want to get involved, look for organizers in your community. There's a group of Ukrainians who are organizing protests here in London. I'm going myself tomorrow. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of Ukrainians have told me the best, the biggest thing you can do to support them is to uh, write your elected representative and tell them to give all the help they can to Ukraine. Go to protest and show your support. Um, and yeah, don't don't believe the Kremlin's lies and uh, support a free and democratic Ukraine. Jeff, thank you so much for making time for this today. If uh, people want to follow you on the socials or follow your writing and find it online, where can they look? Uh, I tweet at Jeff um, underscore Han. I'm on, on, I'm on Twitter and that's my primary social. So yeah, I hope to see you around. And I will, of course, recommend all my uh, friends and colleagues who I think you should follow as well. Awesome. And uh, let's plan to get together and talk about this either after the regime falls or before the Russian elections. Yeah, that would be great. All right. Well, kind of for y'all, make sure you are boosted. Uh, we need to convict the police to kill Manuel Ellis and go Sounders. Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.